Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect anything different. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Joining us from Jupiter today, uh, Mr. Morgan Hoffman. Morgan, what are you up to today? What's up? Uh, yeah, it's good to be on. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Tell us, tell us about this Seminole Pro member. For anyone that's never been there, I've never been there. You know, we hear about it on Twitter. Take us to this day. What's it like? Um, I mean, it's pretty much all the great players in the area that that come in and are invited by the Seminole members for a day, kind of showcasing their course and um, you know allowing their members and history to kind of encompass the great players that are around the area and that were in town for the Honda. Um, it always happens the Monday after the Honda and everybody kind of stays in town and migrates over there one, because it's a great course and, uh, two, cause it's just like kind of a privilege to be invited. And, uh, I play with the same guy, Mark McBride every year. And, um, the McBrides are a big family from Jersey where I grew up and they're members down here as well. And, uh, they call him Mark, they call him Mark radio because he never stops talking and he's so loud <laughs> and, it's uh, it's always a great time. We played pretty decent today, so it was fun. Is it competitive, or is it just like a like a hit and giggle? Like, what's it? Are people out there grinding, or what's it like? No, I mean you got to like finish out, but it's nobody's really trying that hard. You know, it's like if you play well, great. But I think you get your name up on the board or something. But no one's really out there grinding for cash or anything. Is there booze flying? Like I'm, try- I'm picturing this kind of like a fun member guest, but with with actual professionals. I'm trying to I'm trying to visualize what it actually looks like. No, you know, like it's there's definitely no booze flying. There's, it's more like Ritz crackers and like lemon wedges and like uh, <laughs> around the Seminole pool. But you know, everybody's awesome there, and they've always been great to me. It's not like a. Um, it's not a crazy pro-am for sure. It's more of a respectable like history of golf kind of thing. Where do you play your golf down there? I'm at the Bears Club. To take us to the Bears Club. Who do you see out there when you go out there? Is there kind of like a division on how the pros divide up where they play and practice? What's the biggest appeal of the Bears Club? Take us there. Um, the Bears Club is awesome. It's definitely the best facilities around the area. Um, it's really cool. There's When you park in the parking lot, you cruise into the... Uh, in the cart barn and grab a cart and then go across this cool wooded bridge uh, through like a mini forest over some swamp and takes you to the range and practice facility. And then on the other side of the road, there's uh, the par three course where I kind of live over there and um, they just redid the greens this year. So the greens on the par three course are almost better than the big course. And it's just cool because we have free range of, hitting shots and making up holes and you know just the members really are nice and lenient to the pros because we can just drop a hundred balls on one hole in the par three course and they'll go around if if we're grinding and it's uh it's really a cool spot and what's the best about it is if you like have a great practice day and then uh you want to go play like a late afternoon nine and then there's always guys hanging around um, to go have, have a good match. 
Who are who are the best, the most fun guys to have matches with? Who who gambles the most, and who is like the one that like exit on the most? Burger's always out there, and and he'll, he's always enjoyed you know shit talking and and a great match. And uh, Justin Thomas is is always fun. We've had a lot of part three contests, and um, you know Kid Rock and MJ are always out there uh, and willing to obviously take shots but bet whatever you want as well is mj easy money does he have a vanity hand- handicap or does he get too many shots how's that work uh he's been easy money for me i've never lost against him <laughs> but uh yeah he gets 10 shots from us um but like coming down the stretch he has shots on two of the last three so if you're not up on him by then you're you know kind of guaranteed to either tie or lose because he's so clutch i'll never forget we were playing in one match and I was one up going into 18 and he had like a 30 footer to tie me. And I'm like, dude, you're not making this. Like, come on. He, he, he looks me in the eye. He goes, can I curse on the show? Oh, you could say whatever you want. <laughs> he goes, motherfucker. I'm the greatest clutch player, clutch <laughs> athlete of all time. Watch this shit. And he, he drains it and just stares at me and points. I'm like, all right, you know, touche. <laughs> But you still, you still you feel like crazy. Brian Russell there. Yeah, it was pretty sick. I mean, it was a cool part to like. Even if you, yeah, say that's worth it. That's worth the story to yeah. lose whatever that what that was worth. Did you play for more money with MJ than you would like JT or Burger or like what's how's the, that that work from a financial perspective? MJ, uh, he asked what you have in your wallet that day. So it's all got to be paid cash right on the spot. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Unless you make like an obscene bet. And is he quick to the wallet if he loses, or does he? Does yeah, he, yeah. He, okay. he carries loads around. <laughs> God, I'm fascinated by this. We got to do some kind of video uh, uh, perspective on that at some point. But uh, so I want to. We're going to get talk to some of your background and what you've got going on and what's been going on with you in recent years. But one that we laugh at about. There's always two or three things that broadcasts hammer home on each player. It's like they have a little note sheet and they don't get past the two or three things. And what yours is obviously that you fly your own plane. <laughs> but I do want to hear kind of how that hobby started, how you learned it. If that's something that kind of runs in your family or how you got into flying. And I want to know some more details behind that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of my favorite things to do. It's pretty much the ultimate freedom. I thought when I was 17, I got my driver's license and I was free, but now getting my pilot's license and it's even better. Um, but my mom has always brought us up to travel. Well, she's been a flight attendant for Delta for 40 years. And, um, my father had his private pilot's license and then um, two of my uncles flew in the Air Force and then for United as well. And at Oklahoma State, they have a great aviation program. And I did my ground school out there when I was 20. And when I left school and turned pro, I moved down to Florida and finished my in-air work uh, down here in Florida. And ever since then, it was, you know, just kept growing and learning and improving my certifications each year and it's been uh unbelievable now everything except for the west coast i'll be flying to each event so okay that's what i was going to say because i I, they definitely make it out that you fly to every event but if if that's the case and you're flying to a lot of events is it i imagine it's not easy to learn how to do that but once you know how to do it is it and it's kind of a weird way of asking it but is flying easy like once you know how to do it is it very easy for you well the flying part 
is pretty easy, you know, like keeping a heading, keeping an altitude. But, you know, now you have autopilot, and for the most part, it's on autopilot for the for the duration of the flight. Um, but the things that you need to be careful about is just getting complacent and not going through your checklist because that's what, you know, kills private pilots. And because most of the time you don't have a uh, co-pilot with you. So for me, I'm very, very diligent and uh, I plan way ahead for each one of my flights and go through my checklist every time. And, you know, it's, it's redundant, but it needs to be. And I know them by heart and I don't need to look at them, but I do. And that's the toughest part I'd say, because, you know, taking off landing is pretty, uh, it becomes, I guess you could say easy after a while, sure. but, you yeah. know, you need to be prepared for the crosswind landings, the unexpected temperature drops or thunderstorms, or it's just, uh, you, you gotta be prepared, prepared for anything. Do guys like in Jupiter try to hitch rides home with you or, or catch rides with you out to tournaments? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've taken a bunch of players um is anybody too scared to fly with you yeah there i mean obviously many guys are <laughs> you know half the guys don't are too scared to fly on a g4 <laughs> well what's the process like you said you plan stuff out pretty far in advance do you have to from an air traffic control perspective who do you have to contact to say like hey i'm flying into this airport today do they have to approve it i have like legitimately have no idea what that process would be like no it's funny so everybody kind of asks the same question um air traffic control standpoint you don't really need to give any more of a heads up than when you're more like 20 miles out so like four minutes out um and depending on the airspace you're going into like if you're going into a class bravo which is the biggest airports around the country like new york city or orlando miami um that's a 30 mile radius and you have to have certain instruments in your plane uh to fly into there um, but when I talk about planning ahead, it's more just weather, um, seeing what the fuel prices are, looking at the runway lengths, uh, seeing which airport's closest to where I need to be, uh, at the end. And, uh, for the most part, it's just, it's just weather planning because hmm. it can change so much. And, and the apps that we have now for planning it are, is incredible. Um, uh, I use something called four flight. And it has everything in there, and it's a yearly subscription, but it's so worth it. That does fascinate me. So you could just be up in the air, and, and but you know what airport you want to land at, but they don't know you're coming until you're a few miles away. Right. I mean, if you're on a flight plan, um, like if you're on an instrument flight plan, then they'll know from before you even take off. But oh. you can you can fly VFR, which is visual flight rules, and take off, not talk to anybody if you're not in any airspace and then once you're approaching a certain airspace you talk to the tower or the approach control and let them know all right that's the boring stuff with it now what, what's the fun stuff do you ever just take crazy trips on a whim like hey let's go over to here tonight or how does how does uh what, what's a, what's a fun last minute thing you've done or a real great benefit you've got out of it oh yeah definitely um that's the most fun of it. my my fiance now and i we are notorious for like just having a day off and sitting around and being like, Hey, you want to go down to Key West, ride some scooters, have some key lime pie and then for dinner and come back. <laughs> like it's, you know, it's, it's so sick. And then how long does that take to get down there? 
Uh, 45 minutes. Oh my God. That's awesome. But it's like a four and a half hour drive. So it's pretty incredible. Um, and then when I'm at tournaments, it's, it's even more fun. Like, um, the last time I was in Greensboro for the Wyndham, we went over to Nashville for dinner one night and then like, it's just cool to have that freedom once again. What, what's the scariest moment you've had in any, at any point taking off landing or in the air? Um, the scariest was probably when I was still only a private pilot, so a visual flight role is not an instrument. And I was flying at night and dropping a buddy back off in Orlando and Orlando's class Bravo airspace. And, um, you need to follow the air traffic controller's instructions to a T and know their lingo. And, um, so I was kind of new to it and, I dropped them off. It's like nine at night. And I knew that there was a thunderstorm kind of near the airport. And I knew that the ceiling, which is the lowest part of the clouds was 3000 feet. And I didn't want to go above that because I only had a short flight home. So they were like, all right, my tail number was four, three, one, six Foxtrot at the time. And they're like, cleared the 3,500 on two five zero heading, whatever. And I was like, Hey, I'd really like to just stay at 3,000 if possible. Like, no, the traffic volume is too high. You're clear to 3,500. It's like, all right, whatever. <laughs> so I went and right as I hit 3,000 as expected, hit the ceiling in the clouds, went into a thunderstorm, and my head hit the ceiling. Oh. My headphones came off. It was pitch black. There was, like, lightning around. Um, and I get my headphones back on, and the plane's all over the place. And all I hear is them calling my tail number and say, turn left immediately. There's a 737 headed directly at you. And I'm like in the clouds and it's night. So you can't see anything outside. And you're just looking at your instruments, which I wasn't allowed to be doing at that point, you know. And uh, they're like, all right, turn left to this heading. And I couldn't get the plane to turn left because the wind was too strong and holy shit (laughs) yeah so i was like all right well i'm gonna just descend and get down to like 2000 and you guys can figure it out and i got down and i could see again and they were like talking to me like i was a child like hey buddy are you okay up there is everything all right and you know it was kind of comforting at the time because they i you never hear them break code or professionalism and you know it was nice to just hear that like comforting kind of voice like that they were checking in on me and uh, ever since then like that was probably w- within my first hundred hours of flying and um now i'm almost at a thousand and that's kind of what stemmed my crazy planning techniques yeah for, it made you yeah. just respect the air a little bit a little bit everyone kind of needs that little scare to uh yeah I, I know i've had it like with swimming once in the ocean where like i didn't fully respect the current and had like a really big scare on that it's like okay that's why people warn you about that stuff so yeah mother nature um all right well let's hear a bit about kind of your background i know you grew up in new jersey but kind of how you got into golf i know you played multiple sports as a kid uh how you ended up at oklahoma state from new jersey is that kind of a, a normal pipeline and just a bit about your background and how you got into golf um, yeah, from Wyckoff, New Jersey, and uh, grew up at Arcola Country Club, and I was lucky enough, my dad was a member there, and it's an incredible course. They kind of call it the sister course of Ridgewood, where they play the Barclays almost every year, and um, my dad was a great golfer, and my mom kind of entered me into 
every sport under the sun to see which one I like best. And um, ice hockey, baseball, and golf kind of hit home for me. And at a young age, I started really succeeding in uh, golf and hockey. And obviously, the the golf kind of took off a little quicker. And I attended Oklahoma, I attended Ramapo High School for two years, and then my junior and senior year I went down to a golf academy in Hilton Head which was IJGA at the time and um, I went because Gary Gilchrist ran it uh, and he was my coach and uh, after that he left the academy and started his own in Orlando and I followed him there and finished my last year there at that academy so leaving the house at 16 was tough on my family but uh, it was good for me and uh, really kind of slingshot me into a great college career at Oklahoma State and uh, they recruited me from I guess middle high school and it was it was the greatest decision that it was such an incredible school and the people were so caring and the athletic department was just like a family and uh, I wanted to go somewhere where I knew the players were better than me so because I knew if I wanted to be on the PGA Tour I needed to beat everybody that wasn't on tour to get there so Peter Uline and Ricky Fowler were there and um, they were good friends of mine and I knew that if I played well against them then I had a good shot at fulfilling my dreams on tour so so going into college you were you were already of the mindset of you wanted to play professional golf there was really no question in your mind that that was kind of what was destined for you yeah, definitely. Yep. And so when did you know that you wanted to turn pro? Or how, what was the indicator to you that it's like, all right, now it is time for me to turn professional? Well, if I would have done it over, I would have turned pro after my first year. Um, that's when I had my best year in college. And yeah, I probably would have done it then. But, you know, I, I learned a lot and grew a lot staying three years in college. And uh, I really knew I wanted to go pro when I left New Jersey for the golf academy. And I wouldn't have done that if uh, this wasn't my dream. All right, guys, a quick break. Um, I don't, this might actually, we might be breaking this. Depending on when you listen to this podcast, you might have to credit us with breaking this news. But if you haven't heard, our friends at Callaway just signed the reigning Open champion, Francesco Molinari, to their tour staff. He's the 10th ranked player in the world. He's going to have a 14 club deal with Callaway and play the golf ball. And he said, in particular, the Epic Flash Driver and the ChromeSoft X-Ball are what sealed the deal when testing the new equipment on the market. He noticed a huge jump in ball speed. And to quote, the golf ball is the best one I've ever played. The performance from tee to green, especially the feel and control, is exactly what I want. Cali didn't really come out with a, a press release when I told Chad that I'd shot my two lowest scores in the last year. But with the Epic Flash in the bag. But Francesco Molinari says it, and here we go. Uh, in addition to the driver and the ball, the Ryder Cup standout will be making his Callaway tournament debut this week at the Arnold Palmer Invitational with an epic flash Sub-Zero fairway wood, Apex MB irons, Mac Daddy 4 wedges, and an Odyssey Toulon Madison Stroke Lab putter. Go to CallawayGolf.com for more information. Now let's get back to our interview with Morgan Hoffman. So coming out, how did you? Uh, what was it like getting exemptions? You get sponsors exemptions into web events. How did you go about the process of getting your card and uh, playing on the PGA Tour? Um, yeah, so I got, I think I got like six PGA tour exemptions and, um, played okay in them, but I had to go to Q school and, 
I broke my hand during second stage mountain biking with Ricky in uh, California. <laughs> so that didn't go well. And uh, once that healed, I started Mondaying for uh, web.com events. And I like I Mondayed into like five or six of them and top. I played 11 events and I topped 10 and 10 of them and got my card that way. What's the Monday scene like on the web tour? I mean, at that point, I imagine you feel like you more than belong on that scene, but you just didn't have the status. So are you, are you going to those Monday qualifiers feeling a ton of pressure, super freed up or what's that like? No, the, the Mondays were difficult because I played in five of them and my first five, I think I missed by a shot or two and never shot above 68. (laughs) And I was like, wow, you know, I need to freaking learn how to shoot low. And it really, it helped me know my game and uh, it was tough, man. Like there's so many good players and everybody just goes at every pin and you need to, you need to shoot low and learn, learn your game quick. So when you got out to the PGA tour, did you feel like you were, you were ready to compete right away or what was there a big learning curve in transitioning from playing the web tour to the PGA tour? No, I, I'm, I was definitely ready. It was weird because my game was was ready but my i feel like my mental game kind of took a setback because i went into this mode of like oh, i need i'm on the pga tour now i need to you know hit every fairway and hit every green and like just be so consistent and blah blah, blah. and my game is more of very aggressive and you know hitting driver everywhere and um so it was a learning curve in the wrong sense it should have been easier i feel like than i made it but i ended up learning after a year or two and started playing well but well i hear that i hear that from a decent amount of guys where they they get out there and they start looking around so much at what other people are doing how they're practicing Mm -hmm. how they're doing something and it gives them a bit of maybe less confidence in their own process or is that kind of what you're saying you kind of went through um i mean i was confident in my process but i felt like I don't know. I felt like I just needed to hit more greens, you know, like you think of the PGA tour and like everybody's just, you know, hitting it down the middle and hitting every green and making putts. And it's just like, it doesn't need to be pretty. Like you can just, it does who cares? Like I, I hate, I don't want to sound like I'm talking bad here, but he's a good friend of mine. And look at Ryan armor on Sunday. Like he, his game isn't pretty, but he gets it in the hole better than anybody. And it's, it's impressive and, you know, it doesn't matter what it looks like. And I think the new generation is really embracing that. I feel like five, six years ago, 10 years ago, everybody's swing was just trying to be perfect. And now it's just hit it hard. Who cares? And get in the hole. Well, and that's what I think, you know, if you watch professional at the highest level, PJ tour golf on TV, you see it's a highlight reel for the most part, but like you go out and watch people play, like trying to make the cut. I, I, at least when I'm out there, I'm sh- shocked sometimes at how bad some of the shots are. I think people at home, right. and even probably as a young amateur and, and a, a college player coming up, you probably look at those guys and think that they're near perfect, and that's what you need to be. But mm-hmm. the, the, the bad shots are almost always followed by incredible recoveries. And right. it, you know it takes so much to actually get yourselves in trouble. But I feel like it, kind of what you're touching on there is the feeling of needing to be perfect had to be kind of mounting maybe a bit of extreme pressure on you. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. So you retained, you got your retain your card for the 2014 season. You made the FedEx Cup playoffs kind of pretty deep back in the pack. And then you played just your ass off in the playoffs. <laughs> Were you just like on house money, like playing free and loose? Because you made it all, you famously made it all the way to the tour championship. Or like snuck in at each, at each uh, playoff event. Yeah. You, made, you got a lot of airtime during that stretch. What was that? What was that run like? Yeah, that was fun, man. It was, uh, it was kind of like, live free freaking die hard i mean it was it was sick i was it was something that can't really work again i feel like i was going out at night and (laughs) like you know it it was kind of not really caring you know just going out and going at pins and it was it was a lot of fun and I, i needed to do it it just uh it taught me a great lesson and it was it was a blast and i kind of just had that motivation and i knew that I needed to do this and needed to get there. And I, I just wanted to get in the masters really bad. And uh, my avenue was to get an easy lake. So, well, it, it, it either seems like guys don't go out at all during tournaments or they're super afraid to admit it. So if like, let's say, mm-hmm. I don't know what your mindset is during a tournament, but it, in this particular run, you say you you were going out a lot. Is there like a certain lot of guys that you know, you can call if you're looking to have a good time during a tournament week? Uh, it's a very, it's slim picking, <laughs> you know. Um, I I didn't go out with really any players. It was like more yeah friends in the area or agents or stuff like that. But like I, that's not my scene anymore. I was young and I, I love like I love eating in now and having a good meal and you know getting rest and. But it was fun while it lasted. That's for sure. I was gonna say it's so hard to get stories out of guys of crazy parties on the road because I mean when you guys miss cuts now, you especially you with your own plane, you're jet now. Like people get out of town <laughs> and there's not like a a uh, stay around Friday night and party your ass off or anything atmosphere anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean if if there was something to celebrate, yes, then I would, for yeah. sure. Uh, so at what point, you know, we're kind of spanning a lot of time and there's a lot more of your pro career to, to address uh, specifically, but what point did you start noticing abnormalities in your health and kind of take us back to the genesis of that and the kind of the, the, the long story that ended with your diagnosis that you got a couple of years ago? Well, that's the thing. Like my health always felt good. I mean, in college, I didn't eat great. And once I got out of school, I really started working on health and eating and nutrition and um, my trainer in New York City Don Saladino really kind of kicked that into gear and uh, 2011 was when I turned pro and I like stopped eating dairy then and um, you know really changed everything about my like physical fitness it was an awesome change and uh, right when I left college I started noticing this atrophy in my right pec like starting in my sternum like the middle of my chest and it was it was really small it was maybe the size of like a thumbnail is a kind of an impression in the muscle and I was like oh you know that's weird maybe I pulled something or whatever and year by year it just kept getting bigger and kept getting more atrophied toward my armpit and it was just like frustrating so I was I, I started having weakness there and so I started going to doctors and trying to figure out what it was and going to HSS in New York City and getting MRIs to EKGs, EMGs, nerve conduction tests, putting needles in me, uh, like putting dye in MRIs to see where the blood's flowing, like all this kind of stuff. And nobody could find anything and they would do muscle testing and 
say, oh, you know, you're strong. You have a good grip. Like, is there any numbness in your hand? I'm like, no, there's nothing. Like, you know, it's, it's a little weakness in bench press and maybe my, my swing speed slowing down, but it's no one could figure it out. So five years down the road, I finally was continuing the search and went to HSS again and to this neurologist um, because I kind of thought that it was a nerve entrapment somewhere under my clavicle and it was working down. But the guy's like, you know what? I think you might have a rare form of muscular dystrophy. And I was like, all right, look, I've heard everything under the sun at this point. Now you're just sound like an idiot. (laughs) And he's like, all right, well, let me just do a blood test and we'll see. I'm like, sure. Yeah. What can I hurt? So he's like, yeah, it should be like a month or two until you get the results. And it turned out to be six months later that I got the results. And he called me. He's like, yeah, I got the results back. You have FSHMD. And I was like, uh, all right, like, how is that possible? That's never been in my family. You know, like, how is this possible? And he's like, I don't know. But, you know, good luck. Like, <laughs> see you later. I was like, all right, that's sweet, man. You're a great doctor. <laughs> and uh, it was really frustrating. And Well, so, so backing up there, I mean, does it seem like the, this, this, you know, you kind of went through the story pretty quickly, but this went on for five years, you said. Yeah. Were you at all kind of bitter about the process of how it went to get to that diagnosis? Or did you think that all the avenues you went down eventually led to this? Or do you look back at it and like, how did somebody not see this earlier? Um. I don't know. I mean, through the through the process, I've got pretty cynical about doctors and like they just don't really care. You know, it's kind of like a conveyor belt of people that they see and, and more like dollar signs. And, you know, like you really need to find somebody that cares about you or that's close to re- really give it their effort. Because when you have a case like this, it's, you know, it's it takes time to figure out and most doctors don't have time. Um, so yeah, it it was really frustrating. And you know, after I got diagnosed, I went to a a specialist, supposedly the best MD guy for FSH in the country down in Miami. And he's like, yeah, you definitely have it. Um, but there's nothing we can do. There's no cure. So come back in like 10 years when it's worse and we'll give you some physical therapy. I'm like, that's when it really hit home and I was like, you know what? Fuck this. Like I'm going out of the country to find something. And that's what kind of stemmed my holistic, uh, search. Yeah. I want to, I want to talk about Nepal here in a second, but so take, all right. So now again, we're talking about like a five year span of dealing with this. What's it doing to your golf game? I mean, you mentioned kind of your swing speed is slightly decreasing, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't sound like it was extremely noticeable. Like, did you, did you notice a huge dip in your play or did you have to correct for this or how did this relate to your game? Um, you know, it's, it's just more of like swing speed and kind of strength. Like I was never, like some days I would be kind of tired to get exhausted quicker. Um, but it's more just like my swing speed. We just kept getting worse and worse. And, um, I, I needed, yeah, that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. it, it you know, it, the, my swing hasn't changed that much now. I guess it has because like it's gotten a lot shorter. 
Um, I've been in the gym as much as I can be, and it's still not like getting back to where it used to. But it's now it's like we're jumping way ahead, and I'm learning a new game. But so yeah, how does how does the disease affect you? I mean, what is it? What parts of your body is it currently affecting? And has it has it slowly mm-hmm. grown over the years? And do you have a timeline for what that's going to look like over the next decade, or what is that like? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, so the to answer your first question, I my right pec is like 80% gone. So it's just like, if you lift your arm up and you look at your ribs, you know, yeah. uh, next to your stomach, that's what my pec looks like. So there's just no muscle. Um, so you just see ribs and then the left pec, I have, I have about 80% of it. So 20% is gone. And then, um, my right quad, there's like a chunk kind of out of it. Um, but Ever since this treatment in Nepal, it's I haven't really noticed any anything getting worse, which is really exciting. And I'm still taking um, these herbs from there and, and waiting on other blood tests to see how it really worked. All right, so let's take me to Nepal. How did you end up going there? What are your ties to Nepal? When did you go? How long were you there? What was going on there? Like uh, I want to hear I want to hear as much as you've got about that. Yeah. So. Uh, after that visit in Miami, uh, I was like, all right, I'm, I'm looking up complete out-of-the-box situations here and trying to figure this out. So I found online this Dr. Robert Morse, and he's a, I don't know how to describe it. He's a holistic healer, but is just a guy that pursues changing people's diets dramatically and having food cure you. Um, by eating certain types and certain times and how, like, how many servings and what type of vegetable, all that kind of stuff. So ironically, he was in Tampa, so I drove over to see him, and, and I still believe in his uh, approach to this day. It just takes a lot of time. Uh, but he told me, he's like, look, uh, he believes in iridology, which is the study of your eyes to tell you what's going on in your body. Um, so like the, the membranes like in your pupils or around the edges and all that stuff. And, and then like gives you a full body check and he's like, look, you have great, you have great genes and are very strong. And he goes, if I was trying to fight this disease off, I would want your genes. I was like, well, that's, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, now what do I do? And he said, I need you to eat a raw vegan alkaline diet, which is, um, basically just fruits and vegetables, um, and get rid of meat and dairy and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, I've been, I started not eating meat like a year and a half ago. Um, and it was awesome and great change and major increases in energy. Um, and then he's like, you know what, if you really want to speed things up, I suggest you start on a, uh, a cleanse. I was like, all right, great. I've heard about cleanses all the time. You know, let's, let's go. He goes, all right, I want you to eat red grapes for 16 days and just drink water. I was like, all right, let's do it. 16 days. Yeah. So I, I bought, I calculated it out like to get a decent calorie account amount each day. I had to eat 800 red grapes a day. Uh, so I was, eating 800 red grapes a day for 16 days. And in the first four days I lost 11 pounds and, um, you know, 
crazy amounts of weight and zero energy, obviously. And his whole thing was like waiting for a, I don't remember the word, but some kind of big thing to happen in your body, like have a fever or start throwing up or, you know, that kind of stuff. And it never really came. And I went back to him and I was like, look, how long is this going to take? You know, I want to get back on tour. Like I can't, I can't be playing golf right now if I'm like, look like a scarecrow. And he's like, I don't know, you know, it's going to work, but it could take two months. It could take two years. And I was like, all right, well, I'm going to look for other avenues here. So at the time, my girlfriend, Chelsea, was in Nepal because uh, she loves helping kids. And we, uh, when I was 19, when I was 20, my best friend, Sean Einhaus, who his mother is from Nepal, we started a charity over there and helped build a school and like gave kids computers and that kind of stuff. And I've been over there several times before and I just love the people and so Chelsea was over there helping at Camp Hope. It's uh, to help these kids from the earthquake a few years ago, which they still haven't rebuilt their uh, their cities. And all the parents are rebuilding the cities while the kids go to school in Kathmandu. And so she was there and ran into Sangita, who is Sean's mother. Uh, he played at Oklahoma State with me, Sean Einhouse. And they were having dinner one day and um, she's like, yeah, I, I'd love to be free to meet this doctor. His name is Dr. Kamal Josie and he's uh, a healer and he's cured hundreds of people with cancer. And he's kind of ticked that off the list as if you have it, it's easy to cure. And now he's on to muscular dystrophy and he's been treating a patient here with muscular dystrophy and Parkinson's. Uh, for the last few weeks and he's been in a wheelchair for 25 years never walked and um, now he's walking within two weeks and Chelsea's like if you if this situation over there that your big cleanse doesn't work I think you should come try this um, I was like all right well get me more details and the guy's like all right come here for 90 days we'll prepare the herbs just give us like two months to prepare um, and then you can come over and it's a 90-day treatment and I flew over. It was 90 days of herbal Ayurvedic treatment of me just pretty much laying on a bed and then rubbing these herbs that they would mash up in front of me every morning on a stone slab. Um, I would be there for a two-hour session in the morning and a two to two-and-a-half-hour session in the evening. And the stuff smelled terrible. It was like... <laughs> it's not relaxing. It's not a spa. Yeah, they don't speak English. I had to have a translator there. And I mean, it was an incredible, incredible journey. Um, and maybe one of the toughest things I've ever done. But, you know, I think like now when I put my hand on my chest where the atrophy was, where I could just feel ribs. Now, if I flex, I can kind of feel like a little muscle in there, which I've never, I haven't felt since 2011. So, it's pretty exciting. I'm, I'm not making any claims. I'm not, I don't want to, you know, have a public statement and say anything about being cured or whatever, but I'm in the process and I'm, uh, still taking these herbs that he gave me and I'm still waiting on a blood test to see if anything has changed genetically because, uh, 
every single day when I was over there, I just studied food. I studied plants and vegetables and how they can heal you. And it's just insane. Like you, um, you can change your genes and people, you know, in the, in the States, North America really don't believe that. Like, you know, no one's taught that. And I've personally talked to many people who have changed crazy, crazy things in their body. So it's looking up right now. And that's, uh, has kind of stemmed my start for this foundation of mine that, uh, we're trying to build a health and wellness center to help MD patients and not only do that, but educate people that food can heal you. And it's so, it's so exciting. And, you know, you don't need all these antibiotics and pills and you just need to know what to eat when to eat it. Tell us, okay. So tell us more about the foundation then. Is it, is it, are you kind of taking what you learned in Nepal and applying that on, on a, like a, kind of interpreting it and applying that here or what, what is the foundation going to be? Uh, is it about? So my foundation is, um, it's called the Morgan Hoffman foundation. And, uh, my goal is to build a health and wellness center. Um, and, the health and wellness center will encompass a full health one-stop shop. So you come in if you're feeling sick or you're feeling depressed, or if you have muscular dystrophy, come in, you get a, like a blood panel, you see a doctor, you see a nutritionist, you know, you go through everything you eat for your gummy worms that you sneak under, like behind people's backs or, you know, the, the soda that you have, every single thing you eat every day will be analyzed and, uh, kind of redone. Then you have meditation classes. You'll have a, there'll be a gym there, a, a full on kitchen and bar. And, um, there'll be a gym with trainers and physical therapists and everything you need to kind of revamp your health and, and get you back to where you want to be. Wow. I'm feeling uh, pretty guilty about this cookie wrapper I have sitting in my, in my desk right here as you're saying <laughs> that. So what is, what is your diet like now? I mean, golf, you know, is I think a hard sport to kind of really stick to a strict diet, especially when you're traveling a ton. So do you, do you make your own food when you're on the road? Do how do you, how do you uh, kind of apply all of this to, you know, still maintaining your role in professional golf? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult. You can argue that, but I mean, if you do your research, like you can find restaurants that are along your diet or you can find health stores or grocery stores with organic food and stuff. But my, my diet is, I would categorize it as a raw alkaline vegan. So I don't eat any animal products. Um, I try and eat my all my vegetables as raw as possible try to limit oils and um any type of sugar no sugar added sugar at all um that, so i just eat fruits and vegetables and get my proteins from uh like rich uh chlorophyll rich uh vegetables like spinach and kale and really dark greens uh also like seeds almonds nuts that kind of stuff wow okay <laughs> that sounds yeah. intense are you i mean is the the kind of the the approach you took in nepal is this is like is this a place you'll go back to to get more treatment like that or is it something you kind of take the the lessons learned there and just apply that into your regular everyday life well he claimed that i should be good and i wouldn't have to come back but like if it doesn't work he wants me to come back 
but I don't know if I, I'm not sure what my next step will be if, if this, um, avenue didn't go as planned, but, um, I'm thinking positively and I, I love it there. And I, I mean, I'll definitely go back and spend time there again for sure. So what is, what is the current state of your game and, and your body now as it relates to your game? Do you feel like you're on the, on the upswing? Or are you just getting back into things kind of from a health perspective? You're back playing now a full schedule on the PGA Tour. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, I am. Um, I, it's, it's tough. You know, it's like learning a new game. Um, I'm, you know, 30 yards shorter off the tee. I'm a whole club shorter on my irons. And, but you know, my wedges are sick right now. My short <laughs> game is awesome. Um, putting is coming around. So, uh, it's just like, you know, feeling that pressure again and, and being on the PGA tour, like it, it's going to take like a couple weeks. And I, I feel, I actually feel really good about my game, even after missing the last few cuts and, um, uh, you know, I, I really feel solid about what I've been working on and, learning you know now this new me kind of thing and it's uh it's really exciting i'm i'm pretty pumped to accept this challenge it it seems to me and just in hearing this hearing you tell the story that you know we kind of look at professional golfers and see big teams around them and kind of think that there's people guiding them and helping them make all these decisions and i'm sure you have family and your your fiance support around you but it seems like you're taking a lot of this like direction of your health and life like into your own hands is that is that mm-hmm. accurate to say and is that like overwhelming at all yeah it's very accurate because like even my team like my trainer you know he's against me eating vegan he still believes that meat is good and like you know everybody's gonna have their own beliefs and you know you gotta put time and effort into the research and food that you eat and yeah I've taken a lot of it into my own hands and uh but I'm along the journey I'm finding many people that are doing the same thing and and hearing their success stories and it's just incredible so um it's it's really cool well i I remember seeing a lot about your the the golf outing you had for your foundation and but just kind of hearing your story puts puts the whole thing into more perspective i guess now looking back at it but tell us about kind of that that day and are you doing that again What, what kind of funds were raised on that day and all the people that were involved in that uh yeah it was an incredible day it was it was even crazier because uh, right when I got back from Nepal, I like I didn't really have any cell service over there. And once a week, I would check in, turn Wi-Fi on, and see what's going on. And having everybody help me with it and get it all together, and kind of running it from a very uh, secluded place. And it, it turned out to be incredible. We had uh, a big concert the first night and a dinner. Uh, with Jake Owen perform and uh, it, was, it was silent auction, live auction. Uh, then the next day we had two shotguns. Uh, we had so many people come out and support. We had 55 fivesomes and it was just unbelievable from all the pros who dedicated their time to the celebrities and NHL, NFL players coming out. And um, We also had another silent and live auction the next night and it was it was really cool uh, it was the most special thing that i've ever seen and uh we raised a million and a half dollars and uh, i my goal 
my obscene goal was like, I, if we can raise 500 grand in the first year, I think it would be absurd. <laughs> and we tripled that. And, um, it was really, uh, humbling to see that, that support come out from New Jersey and my hometown. And, uh, it was really cool. And yes, we are definitely doing it again, bigger and better this year. Um, everything that happened last year will be even more improved on and, uh, we're deep into the planning process already. We just announced the dates, um, August 4th and 5th at our Cola Country Club. Um, it'll be the same kind of format as last year, a concert and uh, probably two concerts this year. One Sunday, one Monday, and it's the Monday of uh, the Northern Trust, the first playoff event, which I think is at Liberty National this year. Um, so it'll be easy for PGA tour players to get to cause it's only 20 minutes from the course and it, uh, that'll be pretty cool. Well, if there's a way for us to get involved, I'm volunteering that, uh, without, without <laughs> even checking with the rest of our game. So <laughs> thank you. Uh, well, Morgan, thanks a ton for telling your story, man. That's, uh, I know I've read about it, but hearing it in your own voice is, uh, it, it means a lot and it's kind of, uh, had, had an effect on me just sitting here. I'm sure the listeners will love, uh, will love hearing it and uh, appreciate you uh, taking the time to tell it. Yeah. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me on and, and allowing me to tell my story and uh, wish you all the best and hopefully see you soon. Man. Same to you. Cheers. Thank you. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most!